Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog Comic books, comic time Writers and artists are on the line They make a splash as a comic's read And take us on a trip behind the spread Watch out for comic book commentary Spinning a winning inside Fix how they got a hot idea Narrative character, visual tricks And onomatopoeia Uh-huh It's comic book commentary Hey, what's up? I'm Jackson Lansing. And I'm Colin Kelly. And uh, we are together, Jackson Lansing. And Colin Kelly. Uh, and we are the writers and uh, ostensibly the showrunners on Star Trek Year 5, uh, the new series from IDW, uh, which tells the final season of Star Trek, the original series. That's correct. Today on Common Book Comic Book Commentary. Comic Book Commentary. We're going to be going over issues one and two, which basically combine to tell the first episode of this season. Uh, IDW has been doing something really innovative and interesting with this entire run of comics. The plan is for Jack and I to essentially to start things off, but then we tag the story off to a series of writers that function as a writer's room. And every two issues of the book are going to combine to tell one episode of the season. So by the end of the planned 24 issues, you'll have 12 episodes of Star Trek Year 5. Uh, and those are going to be written uh, by uh, about half of those will be written by Colin and myself. The other uh, half will be written by a combination of uh, Brandon Easton, uh, Jody Hauser, and Jim McCann. Oh, yeah. Uh, all of whom are amazing and all of whom will be coming along with their own artists, uh, which have not yet been announced yet. Uh, but we have been working uh, and had the extreme pleasure of working with uh, Stephen Thompson, who uh, – Kills it from moment one on this book. Absolutely. Um, Charlie Kirkhoff is our colorist um, who absolutely brings the thunder and makes Steven's work come to life. And uh, all of it is only made possible by Neil Uyatake, who is uh, putting together uh, our lettering uh, and making our words actually make sense on the page. Uh, so we're going to... Um, as per usual on this podcast, we're just going to be going through uh, issue by issue uh, or, or page by page. Uh, but in the case of this one, which I guess is unique, we're going to actually be handling two full issues. Um, so we're going to kind of move at a clip so that we don't keep you here forever and ever. That being said, I do want to start with an immediate tangent. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to take any time at all, except for this half hour we're going to do to just like talk about Star Trek. We are going to save you all from gushing, from us gushing about how much we love Star Trek. I think you guys can probably, if you if you know about us at all, you know what an absolute dream this project was uh, for us. Obviously, Trek is deep in our DNA. But what you might not know is that it's deep in Steven's DNA. Um, we have never ex before experienced something like this. When we turned in our first draft of the first issue, uh, the 
the notes we got back from Stephen were things along the lines of, well, actually, I believe that you mean the Mark III phaser. <laughs> And such things as, well, the conference room on that level of the track of the bridge actually doesn't have view windows. Yeah, hey, dummy, the view screen isn't a window. You've been watching the J.J. Abrams movies too much. Uh, like, there, he was he, he was deeply already ready to hit Star Trek where it lived and to, and to do so with uh, uh, attention to detail and attention to uh, what really would have operated on the original series. And since a big part of the point of this book is to tell the original series, to really go after William Shatner's version of Captain Kirk, uh, Leonard Nimoy's version of Mr. Spock and so on, uh, that we, we wanted to make sure that wherever possible, we were sticking to the details uh, of the series and uh, calling back to our favorite moments uh, from the series as we told the arcs forward. Um, but uh, none of that is really workable or feasible without actually telling these characters' stories. And and the unique opportunity that I think we have in this book, uh, to go off on my own tangent for a second, uh, <laughs> is that we get an opportunity to take these characters who normally were essentially put episode to episode uh, through the ringer and came out the other side a little bit changed. And then generally those changes weren't reflected in the next episode, uh, you know, because it was a syndicated television show in the late 1960s. Uh, now what we get to do is actually take these characters and say, here's what they're going through uh, in a straight line, uh, in, a, in a real arc. Like, here's how they're going from A to B. Uh, so we, before we even sat down, figured out where our characters were starting in issue one, um, or rather episode one in issues one and two, and where they were going to end up uh, in episode 12 or issues 23 and 24. Or, and more specifically, after issue 24, which is the the, the motion picture. Like yeah. we have an endpoint, we know where these characters are going to need to end up. The big question we got to answer is how do they get there? Yeah, by the end of this, we're going to actually take you to the season finale of Star Trek: The Original Series, um, which is or series finale of Star Trek: The Original Series, which is pretty exciting. Let's. It's very exciting. It's a little tragic, but let's not make our listeners cry yet. <laughs> not when we can make them cry at the bottom of this page. Uh, so, welcome to. Star Trek Year 5. Um, on page one, uh, we start with a little trick uh, that uh, we pull off in the comics biz sometimes. Uh, it's a pre-lap uh, to a future event. We start mm -hmm. in media res right away, uh, and we are going to show you uh, where this book is going. Now, we're not going to tell you where this is going to drop uh, this moment. It might seem like this might come at the end of the issue. It doesn't. It might seem like it's going to come at the end of the episode. It doesn't. So where does this moment take place? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, What's mm -hmm. going on in this moment? Who is that that's holding a gun to the back of James T. Kirk's head as he seemingly flies the Enterprise into its certain doom? Uh, all, all of those are questions we want you to be asking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All alone on that bridge. Um, these are riddles that will be unraveled uh, as the story progresses. But for right now, it was kind of our introduction to let you know that we see these stakes as being the highest possible. So uh, welcome to the journey. Uh, and uh, we did a little thing here uh, that I'm, I'm proud of, so I'll call it out, uh, where we have Kirk incorporate that phrase that he says at the beginning of every episode of Star Trek. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, her five-year mission to, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, and to boldly go where no man has gone. And then when we flip the page and go back in time to before, we end that phrase with, before and it turns into a caption and boom we're right back into uh, Star Trek as we know it so if you open this first page and you're like wait where's Sulu where's Chekhov where's Spock why is the Enterprise crashing who's got that gun to Kirk's 
you know, head. Uh, all of those are questions we're going to answer, but we wanted to immediately drop you back into the Star Trek that you know uh, and love and uh, and really pick up from there in the middle of a mission. And if this double page spread doesn't just smack you in the face, I don't know what kind of Trek fan you are. Like Stevens, the way he's, he's rendered the Enterprise is so slick and so cool, but absolutely classic. And then we have this amazing, huge uh, uh, interstellar anomaly, the Hypernova. Uh, that's was a hypergiant. Uh, apologies. That's cool. It will become a hypernova if the uh, Enterprise doesn't do anything about it. Oh my goodness! Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> ironically, actually, this is one of the only notes that we got from CBS. Um, when working with licensors, you never quite know how they're going to act, and the Trek folks have been nothing but awesome. Their notes to us are things like, "Well, uh, we believe that the science behind that uh, hyper, you know, that hypergiant might be a, the gravitational waves might be effect." And it was like. Oh my goodness. Initially, this was a neutron star collision, and uh, they they basically uh, questioned whether or not that was even feasible for the Enterprise to survive. And ultimately, uh, it made a lot more sense to uh, move in this direction. Uh, and it actually ended up giving us a really great story uh, uh, story tool that we pay off over the course of the issue, and we'll talk about that uh, here in a second. Uh, because the mission is, there. the Enterprise is here to take uh, this... Uh, the the excess energy from this hypergiant because hypergiant stars when they explode uh, are, are catastrophic. Um, actually, they they will send out uh, these massive particle jets, these streams, and if those jets or streams hit any kind of uh, uh, life, especially if they were, say, to hit a planet, they will er extinguish all life on that planet immediately. In fact, we have an extinction event in our Earth's history, the Silurian event, which we hypothesized to be because we got hit by a jet stream uh, from a hypernova. So we thought, uh, you know, it's amazing because any uh, uh, anything that comes out of this uh, could, I mean, this could be a, a, a catastrophic, not just for the planets in the general system that uh, this hypernova is in, but in fact for, you know, systems yeah. For light years and light years the and light years apart. The entire arm of the of galaxy could be uh, under threat, which is not something that the Federation is going to let occur. So the Enterprise has basically towed a device uh, out here that is going to help funnel that extra energy out. And here comes, uh, we turn that page to page four, uh, the... Uh, here comes Spock to explain all of that to us. He's um, going to Spock explain it to us. Uh, <laughs> uh, writing Spock explanation is super super fun. Uh, you have to be a little bit wary that you're not using too many words because actually um, uh, Nimoy's version of Spock isn't actually as verbose as you might recall. Um, but here it really felt like a chance to just dig right in and get a little verbose with it uh, and let him explain the full scientific stakes of what's going on. Uh, and that's, again, I think a thing that you get to do when you're dealing with the 1960s version of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Embrace science. Embrace interesting uh, science fiction concepts. Embrace uh, a little bit of explanation to the audience about how this stuff works. And then create dramatic stakes behind it. Well, and I like to imagine that, like, you know, Nimoy walked onto set this day and there was a whole scene written and he was like, well, actually... I think this is my scene, right? And they're like, you know what? You know what, Leonard? Sure, this is your scene. Uh, the clash of egos is something that we absolutely love uh, bringing to life here. Uh, and as we get to the, uh, you know, we, we get to the end of his uh, explanation, uh, I want, I, I think it's, it's, this is the first of our little like plants um, in terms of nods to the, uh, the previous series. Uh, Kirk essentially goes to Spock and is like, do you think, 
you know, do you have, you know, now that you've established this is the most dangerous mission that we've ever attempted, uh, do you have any problem with doing it? Do you have any reservations? And uh, Spock looks down and says, none whatsoever. This is a Starfleet vessel. Risk is our business. Uh, and risk is our business is actually, he is at that point re-quoting Kirk back to himself. So if you've never seen Star Trek, the original series, that's just a cool line where Spock is saying a thing that, that makes sense. He's like, no, I believe in us. Let's go. But if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll recognize that line uh, from uh, – Return to yesterday, uh, in which case, uh, mm -hmm. in, in which the uh, uh, Kirk actually delivers that line in order to uh, push the crew uh, towards attempting a really dangerous mission that will have uh, huge consequences, actually specifically for Spock. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this because it's a fun one. Uh, Chekhov, after his giant kind of after Spock's big long speech, Chekhov kind of rolls his eyes in a perfect little comedic beat and says... That was a very, very long walk oh, down a very short pier. You're gonna be, uh, you're gonna be getting a lot of that from Colin. Uh, fun, fun behind Sorry. the scenes, fun behind the scenes fact. Uh, I have been running a Star Trek role playing game for a very, very long time. Uh, it's one of the ways that it really got into our blood. Um, we were both raised on Star Trek, but uh, I, I've been exploring it in, a, in an RPG space for a long time. And Colin actually played Chekhov for a while in that game uh, true. as an old man admiral. So. Here you go. Uh, you're getting, I'm going to deploy, a little... and next I'm going to do my Scotty doing it. No. <laughs> um, so uh, then we, you know, we uh, risk is our business. Let's go forward. We turn the page, and we actually get the mission. Um, we see, I mean, I just, I, this beautiful image. I think he just captures James Doohan, uh so perfectly here, Stephen does, uh, that awe on Scotty's face. Um, and, you know, we talk about these arcs that we want to take the characters on, mm -hmm. and Scotty's arc is, is uh, really uh, built, at least in part, on the idea that he is, uh, you know, they've been on this old starship. At this point now, this is a five-year-old starship mm -hmm. um, for quite some time. And here comes this piece of, you know, high-tech enterprise equipment that's coming along and kind of making them look like an old junker. And uh, if you know anything about Scotty, you know the last thing that he wants uh, is for uh, for the enterprise to feel anything like a junker or a garbage scow. Uh, so this is, a, I think, a really great opportunity for him to look out at the stars and be like, man, there's so much more for me out there uh, when they get back home. Uh, and we also get our first captain's log. We get our first captain's log as we're kind of going through all of this. Uh, and I mean, the thing that we love about Kirk and the thing that a lot of us forget, um, especially, you know, younger Trek fans might forget. You think, oh, well, Kirk is the, the campy captain. But in reality. He, or the irresponsible or captain the irres right. or the reckless captain. The if he came up on the 09. Yep. He's the guy who's sleeping from, from port to port. But our but Kirk in reality was much more of a philosopher traveler. Um, we bang the Odyssey drum quite a lot in our text. Um, and that's because we see a parallel between him and Odysseus in a lot of ways. And it's also, it's in his, his pensive intelligence, right? This Kirk is, he's not a dummy. He, he thinks about everything and he's steeped in, in history in the classics and he knows where he sits. Um, and that's kind of what he's ruminating on as we punch in and we find him and Bones, uh, meeting together for a drink as he celebrates his air quotes, you know, his great news. Uh, Kirk has been promoted. And this is one of those places where we know that this has to happen, right? The motion picture establishes that Kirk becomes an admiral and isn't terribly happy in that role. And so what we wanted to do was show him get that position, have some trepidation about it, and show how he eventually accepts that position and why. Um, there's something kind of tragic about that. There's certain elements of Star Trek Year 5 that end up uh, then presenting themselves in their own way as a tragedy. Obviously, none of these characters are going to die. We can't kill them. But there's a really amazing opportunity to... 
uh, establish a more personal uh, element of tragedy, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that the great journey is coming to an end. And we wanted to look at that in the face, not at the end of the season, but at the very or end of the series, but at the very, very beginning of it, and let that steep the whole tone of the show. Um, also, side note, no one is more fun to write than DeForest Kelly's Bones. Um, he is just a blast to write. He is so much fun. He is so uniquely human. Um, he bounces off of Kirk so beautifully. Uh, easy voice to get and, and a really uh, a lovely character to write. He feels like your friend the minute you start writing him. Uh, and then we get to this uh, nine paneler. Ugh, I just, I'm in awe. Like this, I mean, I, it's like, I'm not even looking at the words. It's just like Stephen's art is so fucking beautiful. There's so much raw storytelling. And he's, I think you pointed out, he's able to capture the character, but not, He's not relying on likenesses. Mm-hmm. Like, this is James T. Kirk. Yes, it's also obviously Bill Shatner, but everything about this is so vibrant and real, and I just cannot get over it. It's um, so good. I always look to that fourth panel, and it's like that that f- particular way that the, the arms sort of stretch <clears throat> out and the, the – you know, he has sort of a plaintive look on his face. Like – that's the kind of acting that Shatner gave you specifically. Like it's mm-hmm. very expressive and and human and inviting, uh, and it's the kind of thing that's very easy to to, to ignore. And it's not like we called that out. He no, brought, that, brought that. He brought that to the page. Um, so you know, nine panel can be really restricting, uh, but in this particular case, I think he just uh, did a great job and ultimately brought us down to our first big character uh, uh, step. Our, our first time where we're kind of mm-hmm. I think putting our. Uh, uh, you put your flag down, you know, on the moon and you're like, this is our starting point. And our starting point here is Kirk has been promoted. Um, and there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't say it. Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. I just don't know who I am if I'm not. Uh, who Captain Kirk is if he is not the commander of the Enterprise is going to be something we're interrogating throughout this series. But it's also specifically something that we're interrogating in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, in this first two ep- uh, issues, we wanted to focus our lens on Kirk and understand what makes him different than any other captain. What makes him different than uh, Picard or Cisco or Janeway or the 09 Kirk um, or, uh, you know, or Lorca or like <clears throat> what what makes him fundamentally Kirk? What makes him the greatest captain? And that's, I think, something we're going to essay as we get into the actual conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, turning the page, we kind of get this amazingly fun uh, scene between Scotty and uh, and Spock as they kind of have a, t- a tete-a-tete back and forth. And essentially, Scotty is irritated. Um, He needs help down in the engineering and Spock has just kind of been delegating it. And the point here is something that we really want to explore is the idea that Spock has been assuming that everyone else on the Enterprise here is functioning as a well-oiled machine because he himself is a well-oiled machine. But the reality is you can't delegate everything. Like he is essentially being told off here. Like, no, you can't just tell people what to do. You are still a vital part of this. You are, I mean, for lack of the better word, humanity is important to the function of this ship. You can't step away. We need you, Spock, not an Excel spreadsheet. Especially given that we're getting to the end of their mission, and I think uh, Scotty rightly sort of looks forward into Spock's future, and is like, well, if you're ever going to be a starship captain, which, I mean, we again know, you know, from the history of Star Trek, right. he will not become a Starfleet captain. He, that's not a job he's going to take on. But at this point, that is the next step in his assumed path. He's been the first officer on the Enterprise for five years. Mm-hmm. He would be the first Vulcan captain in Starfleet. That makes total sense. Um, and so Spock himself is even holding himself to that standard right now. He doesn't know what's coming next. Uh, and he also doesn't know that Kirk has been promoted. So there's some really interesting, exciting moves uh, that start here in terms of planting those flags. Yep. This is Spock being told, you maybe have to start dealing with things a little bit more 
head on if you want to be a captain. And Spock is thinking, okay, maybe I do. Uh, meanwhile, Kirk comes onto the bridge. Which we are now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We're ten pages in, meaning we are halfway through the first issue uh, and a quarter of the way through our first episode, and mm-hmm. that's when our plot kicks in. Yep, plot's kicking in. Uh, there is a uh, there is a distress signal coming from a nearby planet. Um, it's kind of a, it's 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 scrambled a little bit, but Uhura informs them it is definitely. Tholian. Uh, it's from the planet Lloyd Zeta 9, uh, which uh, fun, interesting. Uh, sort of personal fact. Uh, my stepfather, Don Lloyd, uh, is a uh, he's an astrophysicist, uh, and I was raised around a lot of astrophysics and a lot of astrophysicists. Uh, but Don's uh, uh, work, primarily uh, when he was doing his thesis work, was all built on neutron stars. Um, so a big part of what we wanted to do here, that's why we pitched the neutron star collision for that first part. Uh, when we moved the neutron star out and we replaced it with the hypergiant, we just went ahead and kept the uh, the name of the star system uh, as a tribute uh, to him. Well, there's a few more tributes to people in our lives throughout the issue, and we'll try to let you know when those show up. Mm-hmm. High five, Don. <laughs> um, but as Colin pointed out, uh, this is our first indication of what we're going to be dealing with here um, from a Star Trek mythology perspective, which is the Tholians are showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's talk about the Tholians for a second. Uh, sure, the Tholians. Like, why pick the Tholians? Why pick the Tholians? Yeah, absolutely. So from our from our perspective, um, and not even perspective, from a, tr- a fact of Trek, the Tholians are one of the few and least essayed alien species ever touched in the Trek mythos. Um, they are. We have heard about them. We have seen them. Uh, we have seen their their ships, and we've seen them once in TOS, which is a Tholian web, and uh, once in uh, Enterprise, where they are in the mirror universe. Um, but they are a ostensibly one of the largest, um, you know, forces in the Alpha Quadrant. If you look at any of the Star Trek maps, the Tholians have more space uh, to their name than the Federation, than the Klingons, um, than any of these other larger species. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we know almost nothing about them. Uh, so we really thought this was a great opportunity to, like, they were introduced in TOS. Let's go ahead and really essay them in TOS. Let's use the toys that are on the table. Uh, and, uh, and it also, a couple of other sort of reasons for that. You're doing comic books, so all of a sudden budget allows you to do a lot more incredible yep. stuff with the Tholians. Because these are, you know, nine foot tall crystal spiders, and which <laughs> is tough to do on a 1968 budget. And also it gives you a great opportunity to uh, tell stories about encountering the most alien of exactly. species. Exactly. That's the key. Uh, and since what we wanted to do here was really, uh, uh, and, and we're, we'll get into this soon as we uh, as we see more of why we're using the Tholians, but we really wanted <clears> to make uh, this story like any good Star Trek story about our world and about what we are going through. Um, but not by being like, okay, we're going to introduce a, you know, say like a Donald Trump analog. That's not the point. The point is rather to look at the ways that we are handling fear of the other and fear of that which doesn't feel like us or look like us or have the same background as us. And let's find a way to essay that in a new way using the Tholians. Um, and so that's going to be an effort um, you know, to sort of give away the ghost a little bit. That's going to be an effort all the way up until issue 24. And I think that's... Um you know, not to tangent again, but just a quick pivot, like Trek is known for a lot of things. Um, but the thing about the original series is like, it's not just that Kirk himself was a poet. It's that the show itself was tackling, um, the, the untouchable issues of the day. Um, it was, we might look at back now and say, you know, oh, how cute they're tackling like racism by making the aliens of different colors, but that's big effing deal. In you know when in the in the time period when it was dropping, and that is the energy. And to everyone's credit, on board the uh, editorial and licensing side, when we said, "Look, we want this series to be as transgressive and as uh, as, as expl- explore 
exploratory Yeah, exploratory. Exploratory. Yeah. Um, as the original series, everyone was absolutely on board. So um, please watch us as we deploy. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're essentially doing the same, we're attempting to do the same magic trick that, um, you know, Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry and all these titans of the industry pulled off all those years ago, which is feed you bubblegum pop science fiction that is going to hit you right in the heart and the mind as you think about how this Adventures of Space Cowboys essentially relates back to your day-to-day life. And I think I think that's an interesting um, sort of uh, point, which is that, you know, uh, you use the words like bubblegum pop. Like, I think a lot of people immediately upon hearing that will be like, well, that's not what Star Trek is. Like, right. Star Trek is really serious contemplative science fiction, especially TOS. But ultimately... The show's best moments were when it was able to take some of that adventurous spirit, some of that military sci-fi spirit, and marry it with that contemplative uh, feeling. If it was always mm-hmm. contemplation and people talking in rooms, the show would never have functioned. It needed episodes like uh, Arena in order to function. Um, exactly. and, and so I think what we're trying to do is always marry a little bit of those two. Speaking of which... Uh, we get our first vista of a Tholian world. It's kind of these crags of it's these giant red crystal pyramids and and mighty obelisks. Except something terrible has happened—a cataclysm that has ruined the landscape, absolutely shattered every single Tholian. It's almost like someone has attacked this place. Almost. Uh, and I and we get our first sort of clues about this. Uh, we. We set up this thing called the harmonic resonator, um, which is essentially allowing them to uh, uh, locate uh, Tholians trying to find any kind of survivors. Um, rather than approaching the Tholians as enemies, the Federation is, is showing up here and uh, Kirk is just trying to make sure that they're all right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it would really appear that they are too late. Yeah. And we get a nice little, to our point of contemplative science fiction, um, we get a little bit more uh, science in here. They... Uh, investigate the uh, the bodies and they realize that these Tholians seem to have been frozen down to absolute zero uh, and that that has shattered them, that essentially the Tholians run so hot and that is something that we know from Star Trek canon that they run very, very hot uh, in terms of their internal body temperature that seemingly by dialing down that body temperature they've actually created a weapon that's been able to destroy Tholians. But who could possibly do this? How could that be? And before we're able to uh, uh, really solve that answer, Kirk is starting to get a theory. He he, mentioned, he has this bit about uh, how everybody in the Iliad, they were all fighting each other, but they were all Greek. Uh, so he's starting to wonder like, okay, maybe only Tholians would know Tholian weakness when... Mm-hmm. Oh my God! What's that coming out of the shadows? Attacked by Tholians. The last Tholian alive on this place comes charging out of the shadows, this, you know, hulking monster. The the the, the red shirts are firing their phasers, but my God, the phasers, they do nothing. He's charging <laughs> down on bones. And meanwhile, Kirk has raced over like what is uh, Kirk's one of his best things is his tactical mind. And he realizes in that split second, well, the phasers aren't working. I need to concoct some kind of weapon. Thank God, because of his experience in arena, he kind of is already starting to think about how to put the pieces together. He's getting to work on that harmonic resonator, trying to, you know, uh, customize it and, and fit his, uh, his f- the firing mechanism from his laser rifle or f- phaser rifle in there. But he still needs more time. Spock, do something! Uh, and I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an exciting opportunity for Spock to utilize the lesson that he's been taught a few pages earlier, um, which is that he needs to maybe face some problems head on. Um, and so we get this great moment where Spock utilizes that famous Vulcan strength to crack, like punch that Tholian right in the chest, crack it up, create enough of a, of a, uh, a weakness point that Kirk can fire his new harmonic resonator phaser, boom, um, and take out the Tholian. I also, uh, special shout out. Here, um, both to uh, Charlie, who uh, 
worked really hard to find the the sort of color that was going to function properly for the Tholians. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very hard color job, uh, creating something that feels like it's like hot from the inside, but still managed to have shadow and light. Uh, but also, uh, I love the way that the Tholian language is represented. Uh, Neil did a really wonderful job of creating something that felt like we would have no idea how to understand it. Because this is another aspect of, of Tholians that we're going to be getting into over the course of the series. Um, they can understand us and speak to us. Uh, we cannot understand them uh, or speak to them without their translators. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally, the Tholians are basically uh, – uh, they are so far away from what we understand to be uh, normal humans that our, um, our uh, translators don't work uh, on them. It's only with Tholian translators that we're able to really speak to them. And that uh, separation, that misunderstanding is going to be a really core part of uh, our series. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, you know, they're able to take down this massive Tholian, though perhaps, you know, obviously it's never a celebration when there's a loss of life. But uh, unfortunately, boop, they get an alarm. The Tholians, or a group of Tholians, a starship, has dropped in uh, from warp above the planet. And uh, Scotty's basically like, Captain, you know, you gotta get back up here. Um, I love the... Uh uh, this bit where Spock reveals oh, that yeah. his hand is broken, uh, really just sort of nonchalantly. Like he's punched the Tholian so hard that his hand is broken. Uh, I just think it's wonderful. Um, and also this is a totally new Tholian ship design, uh, c- courtesy of Stephen Thompson. Yep. Uh, we've only ever seen the little like uh, triangular dudes, uh, but here we are with a whole new design that has uh, some really interesting features that we'll see in issue two. And as stakes are kind of ramping up in space and the crew is getting ready to get out of here, uh, one of the red shirts actually sees something in the shadows. Kirk obviously is going to go check it out himself, and he finds hiding in the shadows not just a Tholian, but a Tholian child. You know, we realize that this other Tholian that they shot was perhaps a parental unit, perhaps a guardian. Regardless, we have a non-fully grown Tholian here, left alone, and Kirk has no choice. This was a rescue mission, and this being needs rescuing. Well, I mean, not to tell you your business, but I think he does have a choice, and that's what's interesting. Fair enough. Is that reasonably, Kirk has an opportunity here to say, okay, we're leaving. And instead, he chooses specifically to take this kid up. Mm. Um, It's a dangerous call. It's a risky call. It's a – it it might even feel like a reckless call, which we'll get into in issue two. Right. uh, Which a lot of things are are people – are things that people sort of like rightfully or wrongfully attribute. Uh, attribute to Kirk. But what I think this really is, is a call made out of responsibility and guilt. He's mm-hmm. just killed this Tholian. He's starting to realize like, oh my gosh, maybe that was this one's parent or this one's guardian. Yeah. Um, and now I have a responsibility to this child. Uh, there's also something else going on in Kirk. This is a really hard decision for him to make. And in issue two, we're going to actually essay exactly why he's making the decision he is. Mm-hmm. Um, that he sees something of himself in this Tholian child. Uh even though they are so very different uh, and alien. And that's going to be a thing that we really get into um, pretty quickly here. Uh, we also – I want to I want to call this out just because this is a, a sort of interesting formal decision. <clears throat> Starting three pages before the end, mm. we bring in the uh, personal log not of James T. Kirk, Captain. We've already seen you – seen Ca- Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk's from later log on in the world. Was, the, was the first page. And we right we have we have we have future Captain Kirk mm-hmm. on the first page. We have Captain Kirk's current Captain's log on page four or mm-hmm. six, uh, and then here <clears throat> we're actually getting the future log of Captain Kirk or of Admiral James T. Kirk, uh, who is here reflecting on this decision, this decision that he knew that he had to make and that was a difficult decision to make, and uh, talking about all of the people who died as a result of that deal. 
all of the things that have happened because of what he does here. This is the unknown tragedy of Star Trek Year Five. What is it about this decision that leads to uh, the way that Kirk talks about this moment here? How will it not just lead to that moment on the bridge that we see in, uh, on page one, but actually to the sort of regretful tone that we're going to see out of Admiral Kirk uh, there later on? And I think that's a really interesting um, thing. How could saving this child end up being such a dramatic decision? Uh, but it will. It's going to set the stage for the whole rest of the uh, whole rest of the book. Indeed. And with that, issue one concludes. And now we flip over to issue two, which if uh, you're listening to this on Wednesday, hopefully you have in your hot little hand right now. Yeah, it is out in the world. Uh, It's gorgeous. Uh, It's got that great Tholian web cover. Uh, It is uh, really fascinating. Oh, and uh, by the way, you should look and see if you can find the variants on these books. Um, Yeah, you should. We'll take a little intermission to talk about the variants because they're insane. Um, A, the cover of Star Trek Year 5 number one is uh, a Greg Hildebrandt painting, which is completely insane done for this book uh greg hildebrand like i mean if you don't know his work you actually do the the the, think about that star star wars poster that you've seen copied everywhere with you know luke with his lightsaber that's greg hildebrand beefy luke yeah um like greg hildebrand is the is is the uh one of the most uh respected and iconic uh, poster artists of all time. Uh, and the idea that he would take on, he'd never drawn Star Trek ever before. Um, and so the idea that he would take it on um, now in his 80s uh, and bring this amazing yep. uh, uh, cover to life is fantastic. I think this cover just sold for $16,000 yeah, at gonna, auction. That was my fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, which is why I am $16,000 poorer now. Oh, yeah. that's where all your money went. Mm-hmm, yeah. All right. Uh, but uh, we also have these great covers by J.J. Lendl. Yeah, and every one of those covers is going to be the basically the first issue of the two-part episode is going to be a um, – that uh, it's a – wait. The first episode is the episode poster, basically. It's Correct. like a, a poster for the episode done in this really cool uh, retro kind of style uh, that's just – really makes it pop. And then the second issue is always going to have a kind of a travel poster to the grand location that we're visiting. Um, so they're all going to go back to back and it's going to be, we're going to end up with 24 super amazing, awesome, uh, you know, basically poster size, uh, covers for that, which is going to be really cool. And then every one of these issues has like cast is going to have, you know, cast and crew alternates and all sorts of crazy stuff. Like IDW is not skimping on rad variants. Uh, so, you know, keep your eyes out and collect them all. Uh, so we are now moving over to, uh, issue two, uh, which brings us, um, you know, boom, right. Like we're skipping ahead just a, a few moments. Kirk is, uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise, he is dealing with the natural ramifications of what has just happened, which is a Tholian commander is laying down the law. Whoa. What was that? Ghosts. Oh, nice. A Tholian commander is laying down the law. Um, and uh, yeah, we get this great um, sort of rundown of what has happened in the previous issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the Tholian perspective. Yeah, uh, which is essentially that, like, they've shown up a place that they were not invited to. They've crossed enemy lines and they've kidnapped a citizen. And killed another. And killed another. Uh, and they're like, you gotta you gotta hand us back that citizen. But, uh, and, and Kirk tries to make peace on it. Uh, tries to explain that he's not responsible, that he thinks maybe something happened to the Tholians below, that he thinks it might have been Tholians who did it. He's not sure. But before he can even explain any of that, the Tholians power up a weapon and speak in the only language that they think Kirk will understand. War. Um, and so we get the first uh, indication of this Tholian weapon. 
Uh, and this Tholian weapon basically slices through the Enterprise-like butter. Now, it does not, similar to... Um, like, uh, similar to how a neutron bomb actually works. It ignores all of the um, mechanical aspects of the Enterprise and cuts right through and it deatomizes essentially uh, a few poor people in uh, in the ship and with this really gruesome kind of awesome pink and orange uh, you know, experience. And uh, just just, just uh, a couple of pages before, we'd been warned that people were going to die because of this decision, and yep. boom, there they are. We are nothing but, if not, men of our word. Uh, and... Uh, and unfortunately, it's not all mechanical. Uh, most of the mechanical stuff uh, gets ignored, but uh, the computer core does not. Yeah, the Enterprise's yeah. computer core is down. <clears throat> um, but the question of why it affects the computer core and not the rest of the people on the ship is going is to become a core question. Right. It's kind ship. of a basically it's, it's a strange weapon. It is not a normal phaser. It's not a it's not something they would expect. And this is going to be kind of the the mystery that the crew gets to riddle out while Kirk is dealing with the emotional mystery of what the fuck are we supposed to do next? Uh, so Kirk is forced to retreat, uh, which is a very un-Kirk action. They um, push back out, heading back for the. Uh, uh, or heading out uh, as far as they can from anything else. Uh, they need to get away from there. They need to, you know, not be getting attacked by this weapon that they have no defense for, or the Enterprise will soon be in pieces. Uh, Kirk's fundamental concern is always for his ship and his crew. Uh, at, at cost of himself, at cost of everything else, his <laughs> ship and his crew are the uh, the most important thing to James C. Kirk at any given time. And so this was a, a really an opportunity to say, okay, you know, Kirk never runs. It's like, oh, he absolutely yeah. runs if this is, if it's between that and the ship and his crew being destroyed. Uh, and here he, uh, you know, delegates command to Scotty, which a lot of people forget. Like, you know, you were so, were so used to Sulu in that chair because he eventually gets command. Uh, but uh, it was actually Scotty who was next in line uh, if uh, Kirk and uh, Spock were off the bridge, which they are now because Kirk and Spock are going into a conference room with Bones to have the most er text of Star Trek conversations. Yeah, right. Like you cannot as a professional storyteller, you cannot get away from the Bones, Kirk, Spock triumvirate, right? Like these three, the ego, the superego and the id, like they are the perfect representation of of what you want in your adventuring hero. And that's actually by design. Uh, Roddenberry at the very start of running Trek was like, well, I can't just have a perfect man as my captain because who the heck is he going to talk to? Right. So he takes the, the three personalities that he would need, the kind of the logic, the empathy and the command and split them into these three characters. Like by design, these three are meant to contrast and conflict and riddle out every mystery. And only through that process, find the truth. Um, so, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say that this was like a dream come true, but it was absolutely a dream come yeah, true yeah, it's to get to write this freaking amazing scene. Um, they're clearly the, they are so fundamentally each other's balance, um, that when you put three of them in the room, uh, they do the talking for you. You don't really write these characters so much as you channel them because they, they really do fundamentally, uh, they just work. Yeah. Um, Spock always has Spock's position. Bones always has Bones' position. And Kirk is always sitting there at the decision point. What makes this scene interesting to me is that it's not simply them riddling out a question. Mm -hmm. Kirk has made a decision that Spock disagrees with and that Bones disagrees yeah. with. That both Sp that, that Spock looks at this and goes, you are acting rashly. You have kidnapped a child. And Bones is going, it really doesn't matter what Tholians are doing to Tholians. We should not be interfering with this. Mm -hmm. But Kirk is looking at it and saying, guys, I think – not only did the Tholians do this to their own people, not only was this some manner of uh, of either genocide or weapons test or something on their own people, but 
I think it's the very Tholians who were firing on us who did this. So I'm absolutely not giving this child back to them because that would be equivalent to me giving up an innocent uh, for slaughter. And I can't do that. But even after that, Bones and Spock look at him and say, honestly, like I know emotionally that's how you feel. But logically, you're putting the whole crew and this whole mission and all of our homecomings, because we're all heading home soon, in jeopardy. Uh just by the nature of your assumptions about this thing. You're putting humanity on this Tholian child, and you don't know what that Tholian child's thinking. You can't talk to it. You have no idea what it's thinking. How can you make these decisions? Uh, and that kind of that kind of question, uh, that kind of uh, uh, philosophical question, is to me the heart of a good Star Trek show. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sitting there and saying, is Kirk's faith in this child going to be rewarded? And... Do we trust Kirk with this decision? Do we think that he's making the right call or the wrong call? I think we want to be questioning that out at this stage in the issue. And I think it's important also that, like, Kirk is not so unilateral and not so confident that he's able to look at his two best friends and say, you know what, you guys? You are wrong, and I am right. Oh, he's filled with self-doubt. Yeah, we have this wonderfully pensive last panel where clearly what Kirk is, or what Spock is telling him is getting through. And when we catch up with with Kirk, he's going to be essaying that uh, that doubt. Meanwhile, on the bridge, um, <laughs> we get to write the, or it says, what, the most wonderful thing, which is a bridge crew uh, without Kirk or well, Spock. This was this was really your idea. I remember you sort of pitching me this idea. So you want to like sort of talk this out? I thought this was very, very cool. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, like, so the idea is, I mean, well, loosely at least, um, this entire crew, sans their computer, um, can essentially work as their own you know, their own brain. This is a room full of geniuses, essentially. They are the best at what they do, and they can riddle out any problem, which is kind of what Uhura is actually the one to spark the conversation in. Um, she prompts Scotty to start to, as we kind of point out, like, hack the problem. Not technically, but socially, right? To utilize the resources available as the entire crew essentially puts their heads together and starts to riddle out this mystery of what is this weapon and what are we going to do about it? Uh, nice uh, 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 callback, by the way, to uh, another piece of, you know, relatively well-known at this point Star Trek lore <clears throat> because of Star Trek 09 incorporating the Kobayashi Maru, uh, mm-hmm. but the Kobayashi Maru, which everyone knows Kirk cheated his way out of. Uh, and we thought this might be a really fun opportunity to sort of reframe that idea of the no-win scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually what I, what I uh, wanted to sort of compliment you on, because I think this is one of those things that, that uh, when we were talking it out was, was very much the, the revelation for this scene, is that Kirk runs the bridge like a commander. He – Mm. He solicits facts and then makes decisions. Sure. Uh, Scotty runs the bridge like a professor. He's asking questions of each of his people and drawing out the answers and then throwing those questions to other experts and drawing out more answers and then throwing that question to the next person and drawing out answers. And we actually see the professor that Scotty uh, uh, can be underneath all of this. He's he's uh, he's a, a really uh, incredible mind surrounded by other incredible minds. We get to see how his command style actually differs from Kirk's, which I always thought was like a really neat – it's like a look at a sep- – like we've seen the triumvirate mm-hmm. and now we get to see how does the rest of the crew operate without that triumvirate. Yeah, or uh, or how does the rest of the crew create their own triumvirates? Yeah, because like, we because we rarely see this. Yeah, we. I mean, this is it is it is extremely rare that an episode of Star Trek or that a scene in Star Trek would only feature 
Scotty, Bones, Uhura, and uh, uh, Chekhov. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Scotty, uh, uh, Chekhov, Sulu, and Uhura. Because uh, ultimately, Star Trek really anchored itself fundamentally on Kirk, Spock, and Bones, the, the original mm-hmm. series. We and think I mean, of these he... characters as having all this agency, but by and large, they don't. They have really individual great moments throughout the series, but it's not like Sulu's really got a particularly contingent character. No, not at all. From moment to moment. It's not like Chekhov has a particularly contingent character from moment to moment. Uh, it's just that we we put that on them because we see what eventually became in the movies and what's become in the in the mythos and how much we project the actors onto it. And that's something that we are very conscious of uh, as kind of the architects of this story, not just of these two, but of the entire thing going on. Like we need to be always very aware that this is this is William Shatner's show with DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy. Right, mm-hmm. the three of them are at the core of it, but Shatner is always going to get top billing, and we kind of approach that in our scripts. Um, we have there's a little Bill Shatner on our shoulders that like steals lines from people and takes them for himself (laughs) but at the same time we the fans of star trek hunger for uhura to take control like we 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 lust for sulu's you know dry wit and for Chekhov's plucky demeanor like this is the stuff that we absolutely want to gobble up but the show in reality doesn't really want to give it to us so you know this was a kind of we, we dipped our toe in it we're giving us getting to explore this a little bit. Uh, and then down the line, other future episodes of Trek are really going to start expanding on this and giving our crew even more of a chance to shine. Uh, and I think this is a, a place where the writer's room really helps too, because then mm. individual writers can come in and say, I really have an idea for Uhura and I want to lean lens in on Uhura. I really have an idea for Chekhov and I want to lens in on Chekhov. Um, Another thing I want to point out before we head to this next scene uh, is just that uh, <clears throat> by doing this little bounce around with uh, with all of the characters, uh, Scotty manages to figure out not only what the Tholian weapon is, that it's this, uh, you know, that it's this absolute zero, uh, essentially what uh, uh, what. Uh, Chekhov calls a stasis ray and Sulu calls a freeze ray, uh, but essentially also realizes that they can convert uh, the uh, that they can convert the Federation uh, that the their phasers, the Enterprise's phasers to that frequency and thus fight back against the Tholians, but also that this must have been the weapon that was used against the people on the planet, against those Tholians that we found at absolute zero. Mm-hmm. So essentially by doing all of this without being asked by Kirk, the rest of the crew confirms Kirk's suspicions uh, and manages to be able to tell him, hey, we think you are right at the very least that these Tholians did this to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that there's still humanity in the Tholian that they're saving. That doesn't mean that Kirk is 100% right, but it means his hunch is right. So it gives him the chance to go in and interrogate that hunch against a more personal question. Um, so meanwhile, down in sick bay, uh, Kirk asks to be left alone with the uh, with the the individual. Uh, asks Nurse Chapel, yeah, asks Nurse Chapel to give him some space. Hey, Nurse Chapel, what's up? Doing your job so good. Uh, and Kirk sits down, and this um, the Tholian child is essentially has his back to him. It's kind of hunched in. We really don't know what its mind state is. And Kirk unveils to him the story of why he cares, um, and that's Kirk's you know tragic past. Um, He himself grew up on a small colony on the backwoods of the Federation and through the abuse of the people that he trusted, um, Governor Kodos. Kodos. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. No problem. Um, I'm here for you. um, Basically, through the the abuse of that man, like, basically to help their society survive, air quotes, he wiped out 50% of the population of their entire um, little colony. Yeah, uh, Governor Thanos. Yeah, Governor Thanos, exactly. Trek was there first. Um, And that is the thing that Kirk fears is happening here, right? He sees in this kid 
himself, even though that they are vastly different species, do not perhaps even speak the same language, uh, but different body temperatures, he knows that this kid might have witnessed this kind of tragedy. Um, and, you know, if that's the case, Kirk, it's incredibly important that he he's not acting unilaterally, right? Like, it is not his job to seize this individual's destiny, right? It's not, he can't, he can't basically, he can't commandeer the narrative just because he feels what's right. You know, this, it is the child's initiative and the child's choice to determine what happens here. It's the child's agency that Kirk cannot rob him of. So the point of this entire story is essentially to, to, to give him permission, to let him know, is this something that you want from us? Am I, am I close at all? Well, there's a there's a uh, a beat at the very beginning of the issue where the Tholian commander essentially says to them, "You've done this without our consent. You've come into our territory without our consent. You've wrecked our, uh, you know, you've you've stolen one of ours without consent. Um, you've put a device in the hyper giant without our consent. Uh, all of these things you've done without." Uh, letting us know that you were doing them, and it's kind of set off this problem. And so here, Kirk is doing the right thing, and for, for all intents and purposes, asking this child for his consent to save him. And Kirk is showing why he knows what it's like to be this kid. Um, again, uh, worth pointing out, this is a callback uh, to an early episode of Star Trek, uh, the original series, where we learn, in fact, that yes, Kirk comes from a planet where 50% of the population was wiped out. Uh, it always stuck with me. I always thought it was just such an amazing... A piece of backstory, this deep tragedy uh, in Captain Kirk's life that he has never been able to totally um, let go of. The episode is called Conscience of a King and involves him actually finding Kodos the Executioner uh, and learning that uh, the man deeply regrets what he did and has become, uh, for all intents and purposes, an actor uh, after the fashion. Um, it's a. Uh, it's also really brilliantly essayed in um, David Goodman's uh, autobiography of James T. Kirk, which I want to call out as one of our primary influences on this book. Um, it's definitely been a thing that we've looked at to try to uh, help f- feed in some real smart uh, moments of Kirk. And then we get to this page, which I think is our only silent yep. page uh, in the book. Might be our only silent page in the episode. Yeah, I'm sure that's probably true. And it's essentially it's Kirk asking for something as simple as a sign. Um, and he rests his hand against the force field, um, you know, doesn't know what he expects. And the Tholian child essentially slowly turns around and then presses his forehead against Kirk's hand. And Kirk knows in that moment that he does have permission, that this kid is, that this kid knows, um, that this kid has been betrayed by the people that he trusted, that he has been betrayed by his own people, and that he's giving Kirk permission to save him. Uh, and with that, Kirk is back into action, understanding <clears throat> what he's doing, and he is going to solve this damn issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and here's where I think we do something that's um, a little unexpected, and I, I imagine there are going to be people who get to this point in the story and go, oh, huh? Uh which is that – well, just because we've – the rest of the crew has spent all this time figuring out how to modify the phasers. And Kirk comes onto the stage and says, OK, what do you got? And they're like, we can modify the phasers to fight back and kill those Tholians. And Kirk says, no, we're not going to fight back. That's not the point. We aren't trying to get in a shooting war with the Tholians. Uh, if I can avoid loss of life both on my ship and on the Tholian ship, I will. I don't care what they've done. I just want to make sure that this kid gets out safe and that the rest of my ship gets home. And so in this moment of measured understanding, Spock, who has spent the whole issue up until now questioning whether or not uh, uh, in going you know, right at the problem, Kirk has maybe uh, led them into a, a blunder, sees 
the man that he knows yeah. and that he respects and says, okay, you know what? I actually have a different plan that can utilize everything that we've learned, but not as a way of going into a shooting war, but instead utilizes uh, everything from the very, very beginning of the book uh, with from the uh, from the Einstein-Rosen-Oroboros device all the way to how we understand these weapons to work, to the Tholian language, to the situation. Every part of this mystery that's been designed, Spock has a way to put it all together and uh, hands it to Kirk now that he knows that Kirk can be trusted with it. And I just, I just, I genuinely love the idea that like Spock is a genius, obviously, but what he's waiting here, he's waiting essentially the entire back half of this issue to see what his best friend is going to do, right? He, he already voiced his concerns. He, he thinks Kirk is acting irrationally. He needs his, you know, he needs Kirk to think about these things. And then when Kirk shows up and says, no, I'm still the man that you respect. Like I'm putting human life. I'm putting life. all life yeah. first. Yeah. And that's. You know, we don't we don't necessarily because Kirk, I mean, Spock obviously doesn't show it on his face, but you know, that his little Vulcan heart is like, all right, that's my dude. Yep. Right. And so they put together a plan. And I love the fact that like, look, without the without the computers, that means we're going to need to rely on our crew. This job is going to need some fancy flying. Hey, Sulu, do you got it on lock? And Sulu's just like. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Sulu's got it. Uh, I love this beat where he's like he, he has to he has to basically throw the Enterprise uh, manually around a gravity well, and uh, Chekhov tries to call him and is like Sulu the angle, and uh, Sulu's just like is exactly right. Like Sulu's just got it. He's on point. He knows exactly what he's doing. And that's something that we're gonna do. We're gonna be pushing for through the entire series. Um, the show never was really quite sure what a Chekhov was or what a Sulu was. You know, obviously um, the two characters weren't really supposed to interact. It was a casting issue. Uh, Takei was uh, over off on another show, and so they brought in this young, hot, sexy, young Chekhov uh, character, and then they ended up with both of them on set, and they were like, okay, I guess you're both the pilots? And it was never super clear. So one of the things that we are really going to be essaying and elaborating on is kind of the differentiated roles and perspectives of these two. Um, Though we never really saw the tension in the show itself, any fan of Trek has to also understand, and anyone who's followed the kind of behind-the-scenes stories between the actors knows that there was a certain amount of friction uh, between Walter and uh, George. And we want to explore that. Like, there's a certain part of Sulu over time that's going to start sizzling, being like, well, the Enterprise doesn't need two pilots, right? And that's something that he's going to be kind of exploring and, and essaying as we kind of find them, find these two at odds. Uh yeah, I'd argue that what we're doing has nothing to do with two pilots uh, and is going to be a lot more personal when we get there. That's very um, true. Than that. But we can't talk about that without spoiling uh, what's coming down the pike. Yeah. Um, so he slams on those antimatter thrusters. You know, they basically hit the J-break and they come shooting around <laughs> this gravity well. Perfect pause until they come to a screeching stop, putting the um, the Einstein, uh, Einstein Rosen Ouroboros, this massive gravity well device that we set up in our very first uh, issue, basically between them and the Tholian ship that drops out of warp. Uh, there's this massive kind of gravity situation between the two ships. And what that does, no, now that they know how the device works, uh, is it actually bends the light uh, of that uh, uh, stasis beam around the gravity well, meaning that they cannot fire on the starship. Uh, what this does is it allows Kirk to deliver an ultimatum safely. It allows him to say, look, we know what you did. We know that this kid is is uh, is essentially a, a – we know that you guys are war criminals and that this kid is for all intents and purposes a refugee. We are going to take the kid. 
uh, and we are going to give him sanctuary. Um, he has asylum now from the United Federation of Planets, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. So please turn around and go away, and we will leave, and nobody needs to die. Uh, and Kirk says, let's go, and uh, gets the Enterprise out of there uh, in, a, in, I think, a, a moment of, uh, of, of extreme sort of command and heroism. Here is a moment he has, he has essentially played chess with these Tholians, and he has gotten them exactly where he needs to get them in order to make sure that no one dies. Uh, but he, he is betting on the Tholians not following him. Yeah, and he turns, I think it's important, they turn the ship around. Essentially, he's showing is he's he's so kind of, he's it's it's not confidence, but it's, there's a bit of hope, right? He hopes that the Tholians are going to pl- do the right thing. And, and not pursue. And not pursue. So they turn the ship around, the ship takes off, and unfortunately, those Tholians cannot let it go. Uh, and a uh, cool moment here where we see for the first time in Star Trek canon, the inside of a Tholian bridge. Uh, and this was a really cool idea, I think, because um, something that we're going to be playing with uh, more and more is that Tholians have a really different biological process than uh, humans or humanoids or, or um, sort of uh, standard Star Trek aliens. They don't need to breathe. Uh, they don't, uh, they, they generate their own heat. So a Tholian can exist in the vacuum of space. Uh, a Tholian can exist fine in the vacuum of space. So the idea that their ships, for all intents and purposes, aren't about keeping them from space. They're just about giving them capability at going out into space. Yeah, there's no need for an atmosphere. Uh, means that now in this bridge, uh, there's no atmosphere. Uh, and the Tholians can communicate uh, in, a, in a way that doesn't involve air. So there's a whole different system going on here. And we get to see inside this bridge and realize like, oh, no, these Tholians, uh, they really do function differently than, than we do. Uh, and that's, again, going to be that's a tease for stuff that's coming up uh down the line yep uh they're taking off unfortunately the tholians have not do not have quite the same uh piloting precision as our good friends Chekhov and sulu uh and that tholian ship essentially zips past the massive gravity well catches it on the corner and is absolutely shredded to shit um, uh yeah uh, i mean look it, page eighteen nineteen is is just gorgeous work um what we really wanted to show here was, uh, you know, how how devastating uh, the gravity well is on the Tholian vessel, um, how by making this mistake, the Tholians kind of doomed themselves. And I, I just think, like, what a wonderful uh, uh, way of doing that and just beautiful DPS. Um, and at the same time, we, I mean, just, you know, giant shout out to Steven, who continues to do wonderful work, and to Charlie, who continues to uh, uh, make that work come to life. Uh but here we also get our last of our captain's logs. Um, Star Trek is f- relatively famous for ending its stories on morals, um, especially original series. Uh, kind of the whole point was to end these things with a certain amount of wrap up. Bat, we're back on the bridge. Well, that sure was an interesting thing that we went through. I guess we'll, you know, I guess the moral of the story was this. And then maybe there's like a quip and that's the end of the story. Yeah. Um, so what we wanted to do is do our version of that. Uh, but here, Kirk has made a big decision. He's made a decision that's going to have ramifications. We talked about how, you know, you get to the end of an issue or an episode of Star Trek and the next episode, there's no real c- continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, here, there is absolutely continuity. James T. Kirk has just added a Tholian to the crew of the Starship Enterprise. There is now a Tholian child in Sanctuary on the Enterprise. They're not dropping that kid off on the the next Starbase. He will definitely be around in the next episode. Um, And the next and the next. And that uh, ongoing storyline of how this Tholian child integrates with the crew is something that we're going to be making really the backbone of Star Trek Year 5. And so here you have him uh, essentially saying, like, uh, that created a... uh, uh, that creates this opportunity, this potential opportunity for war. Uh, and that 
is is very troublesome um, to somebody like Captain Kirk, who, as Colin pointed out, is a philosopher and is uh, a student of the classics and uh, is also an enlightened man of the 23rd century. And there's no part of that man that wants to see or 20. Yeah, 23rd. Uh, and there's no man that there's no part of that man that wants to see himself kick off a war. Um, Star Trek too often uh, <clears throat> leans, I think, on war stories. And what we wanted to do was find a way to tell a story with the potential for war without making it a cut and dry, you know, war story. Especially because we're playing with TOS and uh, Gene Roddenberry's feelings on that were that Star Trek should rarely, if ever, be a war story. So we really wanted to find a way to like, okay, let's let's uh, let's essay the dangers of war rather than necessarily war itself. Um, and uh, uh, shout out to um, uh, I don't know his name unfortunately, but there's a an author. Um, when we were reading rereading the Odyssey, uh, heading into this book, there was a great forward uh, to the uh, to the version of the Odyssey the, that the translator uh, had made that I was reading, and he mentions uh, that to the Greeks, you know. Uh, the Odyssey was, for all intents and purposes, or not the Odyssey, I'm sorry, the Iliad, mm -hmm. uh, was their first sort of big historical uh, moment. Like before the Iliad, there's not a lot of written <clears throat> history or like understood history. Um, and so to those Greeks, history began with a war. And I always thought like what a fascinating concept mm -hmm. that is, yep. that it would create – uh, that that would create like a warlike society. Whereas with Star Trek, by the time that we've gotten here, uh, history actually really begins with a peace. It begins with the Vulcans and the humans getting together and deciding that they're going to do something better. Uh, and here you have Kirk saying, you know, well, history might have begun with a war, but it cannot end with one. But we know that he has taken the first step towards perhaps uh, leading them into a war. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's a uh, that's going to be the sort of first um, uh Step along the way to that scene that we see in uh, page one um, with Kirk all alone on the bridge uh, with none of his friends around him and a gun to his head, uh, giving the very last captain's log of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll be taking you along that journey um, for the next two years. And that is a Star Trek issue, too. Um, we are so glad that you guys joined us today. Um, do you have any wrap up thoughts about? have the amazing privilege or honor that it is to it is an amazing privilege and honor touching one of the greatest stories that uh, has ever been put to celluloid uh, we are not like no joke just giant Star Trek fans in our own lives um, we spend a lot of time talking about Star Trek in a way that has nothing to do with business or work or writing uh, at all um, so the idea of getting to step uh, into these shoes was really um, daunting uh, and very scary Um but at the same time, I think what's become very evident is that uh, part of that fandom and part of that uh, love for the material results in – I think we both had this experience, right, where, where we – once we started writing the book, we would look at each other and be like, this is actually really fun. This is really fun. Yeah, and it was nerve-wracking to step into it. But then once it started, it's like these are the characters that we've been living with our entire lives in a lot of ways. Like these are the characters that we have modeled ourselves after as, you know, young men trying to be the best versions of ourselves. Um, it is Star Trek. So the chance to play in this universe, um, I hope that you guys, the readers uh, and the fans – Feel our passion and love. Um, if there's one thing that I want you to be walking away from this book, it's like everyone here cares so much. And we are going to be telling the absolute 
the the apex story possible. We're doing our best. We are going to do our goddamn best. Um, we are going to be riddling the entire series with uh, both callbacks to stuff in the original series and also, I mean, secret, secret, spoilers. Uh, so, like, keep your eyes open for all of that great stuff. And brand new material. Um, there's going to be brand new aliens. Uh, there's going to be a really exciting sort of pivot about halfway through, so about a year from now. There's going to be a really exciting pivot into new kinds of stories. I can't wait to get into what that's going to be. Yeah, if you enjoyed these first two issues, um, we are not slowing down from here. Everyone else is going to absolutely bring the thunder. Uh, and this series is going to constantly surprise and delight you. So thank you so much for uh, reading it. I hope you add it to your pull list. And uh, yeah, come back in uh, a month. Uh, not obviously to here, but like, you know, to the comic book shop. Come back here every week. Uh, but come back uh, to your comic shop next month for... Uh, Issue three, uh, in which case Brandon Easton uh, comes in to take over uh, on uh, an issue that is all uh, that is taking us all the way back to uh, a planet that uh, uh, was left with maybe not Kirk's best solution ever, uh, Sigma Iosha uh, three. And so, we'll we'll find out if uh, if 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 Kirk and the Enterprise can finally get a piece, a piece of, the of the action. action. All right, Jackson, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson Lansing. You can find me on Instagram at Found in the Wild. You can find me on uh, Comixology and read all of my comics that I write with Colin Kelly. Colin mm-hmm. Kelly, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter uh, at CP Kelly. There are a lot of great Colin Kellys in the universe, but I'm the only at CP Kelly. Uh, don't look for me on Instagram. I don't use that. Uh, buy my comics on Comixology. Uh, I'll just give Jackson 50% of what we sell. So he's, you know, pretty good duck, pretty good guy. Nice. Um, and and uh, maybe, like, I'll see you on the street sometime and we can give each other a high five. Yeah, we'll do that. Um, and if you want to, uh, if you, like, were like, wow, those guys really seem to love Star Trek, maybe uh, I want to, like, listen to more of their Star Trek, uh, you should go. Uh, you have two things that I would really recommend you check out. One is on YouTube. Uh, just go ahead and search my Spock and uh, hear huh? me do a rap all about Spock. I'm just just saying. It's out there. It's weird. I, I did it many years ago before ever working on this IP was a twinkle in my eye. If you really want my... Uh, what 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 uh what Eisner award winner Eisner nominated comics creator Max Visaggio calls the most insightful take on Spock uh, around uh check out my Spock uh and then if you want uh other cool space adventures uh go find Vast uh which was a uh, web series that Colin and I did uh, a while back that uh with a bunch of our friends where we played a, a role playing game that had a lot of uh, similarities to Star Trek um so with that said yep this was amazing. Uh, thanks again to everyone at Forever Dog for having us here. Uh, this was a blast. And uh, yeah, we will see you all uh, soon. Live long and prosper. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original Dog. podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.